Tato. Welcome to Asia Insight, the podcast from the Asia New Zealand Foundation, Tifatu Tuhono in Wellington. I'm Suze Jessup, the Head of Research and Engagement with the Foundation, and I'm joined by my research colleague, Dr. James Toe. Recently, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Singapore-based Andrew Tan. Andrew has spent 28 years in the public sector, where he held key positions across various Singapore government agencies, from the Ministry of Information and the Arts, Ministry of Defence, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Prime Minister's Office as Private Secretary to Lee Kuan Yew. Andrew was also the CEO of Singapore's National Environment Agency, Chief Executive of the Port and Maritime Authority of Singapore, and most recently served as the head of Singapore investment company Temasek. Andrew was in New Zealand recently to address the China Business Summit held in Auckland, and following his address, James and I had the opportunity to sit down with Andrew for a chat on his perspectives on our region. I began by asking him about the conversations on China that are being held in Singapore currently, and how they might align with conversations closer to home here in Aotearoa. Thanks, Sue. I think the summit yesterday was certainly impressive in terms of its uh, attendance from the uh, business community. Uh, it was great that uh, we could have your Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, uh, open the discussion as well as set the overall tone of your engagement uh, with China. Uh, obviously, these ties have grown um, much more significant uh, in recent years. And I Listening to the uh, conversations, I think it certainly brought uh, great attention to the sort of key issues that are, in a way, confronting not just New Zealand, but also the rest of the world. Uh, I would start off by saying we are still in the midst of a very nascent uh, recovery post-COVID. Countries are still trying very hard to rein in inflation. The ongoing conflict in Russia, Ukraine is driving up uh, energy, food, commodity prices, while tensions between US and China is affecting not just investments, but the overall stability of the world. Unfortunately, until both sides find a new equilibrium, an equilibrium that will take uh, time to develop because the capabilities they are either trying to protect or to develop uh, cannot be done uh, overnight. So I don't think we have yet seen an end to all this, at least at this stage. Uh, but at the same time, I should qualify that the world's two largest economies are so closely interlinked and intertwined that full decoupling, de-risking or diversification, whatever you call it, it is near impractical, if not impossible. So friends with both sides should certainly voice their views and concerns in their usual manner, whilst making sure that there are safeguards in place to prevent incidents or things from boiling over. So I'm glad to see that both US, China, as they engage countries like New Zealand, Singapore and others, recognize the stakes involved and are finding ways to find a way forward, including keeping lines of communication uh, open. And trust will obviously be key. And this, I believe, has also been underscored by, by your Prime Minister. Exactly right. I think we've heard uh, just how critical to having that government-to-government uh, -government dialogue is fresh off the back of his visit uh, to Beijing, the first since, uh, I think, 2019. In this environment of uh, disruption and tension and rivalry, how would you describe Singapore's trade setting? 
I think putting aside the uh, ongoing uh, US-China rivalry and the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we have to accept that the fact is disruptions can and will happen. Uh, if you look back at the last few decades, we've enjoyed a remarkable period of relative calm since the end of the Second World War. But we have also seen major disruptions come in uh, different forms, from man-made disasters, or if I may call it a disaster, as a great financial crisis, to natural disasters as Asian tsunami, Fukushima, SARS, and more recently, COVID-19. Mm. And climate mm. change has added greater uncertainty to all these. I think these events by themselves are not unprecedented, if you look back in the course of history. But what's changed is that the world has become more globalised and interconnected. So small countries like New Zealand and Singapore have to find a way to survive in this very complex world. As we all know, no one owes us a living, uh, yet we are too small to influence the course of global events. So we have to be nimble, adapt, change as the world changes. And that's been the philosophy that Singapore has uh, always uh, abided by since our independence. So keeping ourselves relevant uh, to the world economy remains at the heart of really what we do, while at the same time making sure that Singaporeans benefit from the country's uh, growth and uh, prosperity. I mean, if you ask our leaders or any of our leaders, I, I doubt any of them with all sincerity know where the world will be in the next 20 or 30 years, much less in the next 10 years. The speed of change has just simply accelerated. Mm. So what we can do is make sure we as a nation, as an economy, and as a society are mentally prepared and well-equipped to brave these challenges. Many of our recent initiatives to build upon the foundations we've laid while creating new opportunities for ourselves uh, can, can be seen in this uh, uh, context of trying to be as future-ready as we can. And that's something which is preoccupying uh, the minds of our leaders. Uh, and we've been certainly seeing much more active uh, foreign diplomacy, both within the region in Southeast Asia, which is close to us, as well as internationally, as well as on the trade front, upgrading or refreshing many of our bilateral and multilateral FTAs, mm -hmm. as well as uh, building new beachheads in new markets in Asia, Europe, Middle East, while ensuring close ties with our immediate neighbours. And with China and US, we are close friends with both. And they know we have well-meaning intentions when we engage them. And when we can play a role, we try to be helpful as an honest broker. And from time to time, we may have differences uh, of views, but so long as there is trust in the relationship, we can agree to disagree while making sure relations stay on an even uh, queue. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to bring in my colleague, um, Dr. James Toe, who's also joining us for this conversation to just perhaps dig into some of these interesting areas. Thanks, Suze. Um, Andrew, what you just told us sounds very similar to the New Zealand experience. And uh, yet for New Zealand and Singapore, and, uh, along with at least 120 other countries around the world, um, China is our largest trade partner. And um, I was wondering, what is the conversation about things like decoupling or diversification in Singapore sounding like? Well, we have uh, close ties with uh, many trading partners uh, like the EU, ASEAN, uh, uh, India. And of course, China is one of our largest, uh, if not the largest trading partner. And in fact, Singapore, since 2013, if I recall, has been China's largest uh, foreign investor. But all these ties did not come about by, by chance. It came about with a 
active uh, policy of uh, seeking new markets and developing friendships uh, all over since our independence. So it's not something you can pull out of the hat uh, yeah, overnight. Yeah. Uh, building these ties require consistent efforts. We also try to be helpful within our means. Uh, I mean, we are not a major donor country, but we help others sharing our own development expertise, knowledge, uh, technical resources. And that's how we started with China too. When they were opening up at a time when perhaps the rest of the world was not so open to them. And we set up our first industrial park, which is the Suzhou Industrial Park, uh, which mm. has been a great success story and more importantly, a great learning uh, opportunity for both sides. Um, uh, it was established at a, at a very senior level between the two governments, but at the same time, it's brought together uh, several generations of uh, officials. Uh, and through that uh, exposure, they've, we've gone to grow more comfortable and to also understand each side uh, better. And China for us is a natural market for many of our companies looking to venture abroad because of its proximity, the familiarity of culture, language, customs. But the fact that our companies are able to understand both uh, East and West uh, gives them a certain edge of sorts, mm. uh, I would say. So diversification, if we may use the word, um, and I know there are a lot of connotations with, with the use of that word, but having as many trading partners as possible is not simply about geography and markets, but how and where we can source our needs uh, uh, in all its aspects in the most effective and efficient manner. So it's not just proximity that counts. There are many factors involved. Uh, say in the area of food, for example, we import from all over. Chickens from Brazil, dairy products from New Zealand, fish vegetables from Southeast Asia, and so on. But it also makes sense to be resilient in today's context. So we have a 30 by 30 strategy underway to achieve 30% of our nutritional needs by 2030. So that's part of our, you may call it diversification, but it's part of our efforts to make sure that we have different sources of food supply. Yeah, part mm. of the sort of resilience. Yes, part of resilience. And of course, given re recent events, you can see how important that is, uh, particularly with COVID. And the same concept extends to energy security as well. Where our diversification of our energy uh, our imports uh, through our different uh, LNG terminals, where we get sources of LNG from different parts of the world. And now we're, we're also exploring renewable energy imports uh, from Southeast Asia, such as pump storage, hydroelectric power from Cambodia uh, through possibly one of the longest uh, subsea transmission ca cables. And perhaps one way we, we might even draw upon green molecules from this part of the world. The thing about this is that these efforts also create new interdependencies, which brings relations with these countries concerned to a whole new level. As for export markets, the large MNCs or multinational corporations will have their own export markets. Services is a large part of our economy at 70%, and manufacturing is about 20-25%. And each of these sectors have their own challenges. For example, in the digital economy space, it's having to navigate the myriad of new regulations around data, be it in the US, EU, China. So they have to find a way through this regulatory landscape, which is what they've been doing all this while, except it's become more pronounced. And of course, in advanced manufacturing, uh, it's even more pronounced for things like making chips or things that goes into chips. So long and short, I think you have to look at each particular sector, particular industry, and with all these uh, regulations uh, out there, uh, you just have to find a way to navigate these uh, and engage the country's uh, concern and in a way uh, prevent 
uh, supply chains from being uh, crippled. Yeah, yeah. And in many respects, that's the been the project of globalisation, hasn't it, to work together and build all of those strands and then manage them so that they are stable and mutually beneficial. And it's always been a process of waxing and waning in those relationships. But, you know, here in New Zealand, we've always been really amazed at Singapore's phenomenal growth and transformation from early days as as a regional trading port to what is today an internationalised leading edge sort of super city state um, since its independence in the mid-1960s. What, in your opinion, have been the key drivers or the sort of context behind that success? In some ways, you know, here we are really thinking about if copying is the sincerest form of flattery, then, you know, what can we learn? What what have been the, the key ingredients for Singapore uh, leading that transformational growth? Well, I would say that Singapore's uh, success is not necessarily a recipe for, for everyone. And certainly in every uh, context, there's much learning to be done on both sides. Um, but in our case, uh, success was not a given. And I'm sure if you look back at the uh, telegrams that your High Commissioner sent back to <laughs> yeah. headquarters in the formative years of independence post-65, uh, some of them would have put a big question mark on our ability to survive. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was drive. mutual. <laughs> yeah, given the uh, overwhelming uh, odds that were stacked against us. But... But the world was prepared to give us a try. And to all credit to our founding leadership team uh, led by Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, uh, he was able to convince the external countries, the external powers, that Singapore was a good bet. Yeah. Not just in words, but in deeds. Uh, so good leadership has been and continues to be a key success factor uh, uh, for us. Uh, it also helped that we had a very uncertain and uh, threatening uh, external environment, which formed the backdrop to our early nation-building efforts, and this injected a strong sense of uh, urgency. And we also able, I believe, to persuade the major powers of the day to maintain a strong security presence uh, in the region until such time that we were able to build up our own uh, defence uh, capabilities. And part of this was also the genesis of the five power defense arrangements, mm-hmm. which New Zealand remains an important uh, partner and member. And the rest was essentially mainly left to us to determine, in other words, how we make do with what we have. Or as Mr. Lee uh, himself would say in his own words, it's, it's the deck of cards that you're dealt with. It's how you make use of that deck of cards, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's where, you know, building a modern industrial economy became a priority for us, uh, which then translated into creating a pro-business environment, attracting investors to the country, strengthening our connectivity to the rest of the world, uh, with our airport, uh, port. I think those of you who've been to Changi Airport will, will, will see the scale of the airport. Uh, yeah, and likewise, if you have a view of the port, you can see the large volume of uh, containers that we that we handle. Uh, at the same time, staying open as an economy, uh, being open to talent and finding ways to stay relevant as the world changes. Yeah. So that's that's how we how we cut our teeth uh, in the early years of our independence. Mm-hmm. And each successive generation of leaders have built upon these fundamentals and found ways in which to to build upon these uh, 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 foundations we have laid. Yeah. yeah. 
And looking at the the hand of cards that you've been dealt uh, today, what would you say are some of Singapore's ambitions and aspirations over the next couple of decades? You know, if if you think about how Singapore is factoring in having an ageing population into Singapore's future planning and some of the both domestic and regional headwinds you might be um, dealing with, you know, what do you think the next two, 10 to 20 years looks like? Well, I would say that in many ways our ambition, if we can call it, remains the same as it was when we were first independent in 1965 as a very improbable nation. And we have to stay relevant and make sure that we continue to survive the next 100 years of more. And history, if you look at it, has not been kind to small city-states. So how can you be distinctive? How can you carve a niche for yourself? How can you find new sectors of growth? Uh, I, I think much of this hinges upon how the world is changing and making sure that you invest or put a premium, say, in the areas that are absolutely critical to you, like an active foreign policy, a strong defense, and then finding new growth drivers for the economy uh, itself. And and so no one can predict what the future will hold. And even as we speak, I'm sure AI, CRISPR, and other technological advances will make certain roles obsolete as they create new opportunities. Mm-hmm. And if we are to stay as a thriving metropolis, then I would say we need to get the basics right, which comes back to a vibrant economy, cohesive society, and being friends with all, including a strong defense. So none of this will be a given. We have continued to invest in all these uh, 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 areas, and each generation of uh, new leaders would have to find a way to build that trust with the, the population, particularly the young, and have the courage to make very difficult decisions in today's context, as you're aware, and manage also the trade-offs that are necessary. With an aging population, we will obviously need to relook at everything from our housing, healthcare, social welfare to employment to cater to different needs, longer lifespans, and so on. Uh, We are looking at retaining people also longer in the workforce and then providing better facilities for our seniors as well as managing the rising cost of healthcare. But at the same time, you know, we have to stay open to to talent. Um, uh, Always a sensitive issue in an economic uh, downturn. But by and large, I think Singaporeans recognize that if we can bring in that added layer of skilled talent, this has been helpful in sectors where we like those uh, skills. So the Singapore of today, I would say, was literally built on the back of our forefathers who kept Singapore as a trading hub going. That generation decided to sing their roots because they believed that their sons and daughters would have a better future, first as part of Malaysia and then as part of an independent Singapore. They were promised jobs, they got jobs. They were promised housing, they got housing and they were promised a clean, green, and healthy environment to bring up their families, and they got that too. So a large part of the social compact hinged upon the trust that was developed between the government and the people. And without trust, as you know, nothing is possible. And going forward, I think these challenges will continue to be key, particularly for the next generation. And this will obviously be much harder to do if the economic pie strings, income gaps widen, or and or all certain segments of society are left left out or left behind, uh, and and that's where 
you have to make sure that the sort of world which we will all inherit, our sons and daughters will inherit, uh, continues to be that world that is still open, inclusive, and there are certain, you know, as some have called it, rules of the road which everyone observes. So that small nations like like us, like New Zealand, are able to find a way to make a living. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of shared values, I think, there. Um, so just looking forward, and uh, before we wrap up um, this podcast today, um, where do you see New Zealand's relationship and engagement with Singapore heading? What do you think are some of the sectors presenting most opportunity for collaboration? And so what are some of the key considerations you think could do with more attention? I would say New Zealand and Singapore are two small countries with uh, similar outlooks uh, values and the long association that sometimes people forget that stretches back to our early days of independence. And, and, and certainly there's much we can do together. We are a gateway and hub to Asia with a greatest ease of doing business, rule of law, efficient government, the sort of things that businesses like. And I would encourage New Zealand to leverage on Singapore as a springboard to the region. And when I say region, I don't just refer to the likes of China, India, but Southeast Asia, which is also becoming a very dynamic uh, mm. a region of 500 over a million people. Mm. Um, and of course, there are major markets there, Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, uh, uh, Malaysia, the Indo-Chinese ca- uh, uh, countries, where there will be specific opportunities uh, that will actually require the sort of uh, solutions that New Zealand has uh, developed for itself. You are strong in sectors such as food, beverage, uh, agriculture, uh, environmental conservation, and also in services. I think education here is very good and you continue to attract a lot of people from the region. Tourism, of course, and then, of course, you also have the creative industry, digital technologies. And these are also sectors that will be key to Asia's uh, uh, growth, which you want to be part of that narrative. And Singapore can complement your go-to market strategy as a global regional hub for advanced manufacturing services, our strong global network connections, and of course, banking finance. In fact, when our two prime ministers met last year, they've also identified a new pillar of cooperation uh, under the Enhanced Partnership Agreement, namely the green economy in areas such as energy transition, carbon markets, sustainable transport. I think these are all good areas Mm. uh, we should uh, explore. And I will venture to add another area of collaboration, which is in AI and the ethical and governance frameworks around this emerging area of technology, which will have a variety of applications. For New Zealand to venture more boldly in the region is not without its risks, but you can hedge this risk by having good partners like Singapore. And of course, I would end off by saying nothing beats having boots on the ground and nurturing the relationships that will take time to develop. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, Andrew, it's been such a pleasure. And uh, I'd just like to mention, you know, the the Asia New Zealand Foundation has recently released Perceptions of Asia and Asian People's Research and the New Zealand public, uh, I think, agree with um, 
that proposition that they see the rise of Southeast Asia as, as important. Uh, Singapore is listed as a trusted partner in the region and as a partner with tremendous opportunity with not only those close and historic people-to-people connections but also between our young people, young entrepreneurs, artists and, and other areas. So it's really exciting to see that trend and that, that sort of interest at a um, society level within New Zealand. So so I hope watch this space, but thank you so much for sharing your insights today. It's been a tremendous discussion uh, and we look forward to hosting you in New Zealand again uh, before too long. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been speaking with globalist Andrew Tan from Singapore. That's Asia Insight. Thanks for listening. Ka kite anu.